0: Hello and welcome to Global Digital Futures Podcast, brought to you by the SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipo Mapundera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. This week, we are speaking to the founder and chief product officer of Quilt.ai, Dr. Angad Chowdhury, on what AI told us about COVID-19. We are really happy to have Dr. Chowdhury joining us on the podcast for the second time. And just to refresh, Quilt.ai described the internet as a repository of human behavior, opinions, preferences, and social interactions. Their team of anthropologists, semioticians, designers, engineers, data scientists, and mathematicians are using these digital fragments to understand people and culture at scale. They have been doing some fascinating work, including research on child protection and suicide and they've just launched their climate change dashboard. So today we're going to get into some of that research and discuss how COVID-19 has impacted human behaviours. Hi Angered. thanks for joining us today.
1: Hi Dachifo, thank you for that very generous introduction and I'm really glad to be back on your podcast.
0: Yeah, it's really nice to catch up. Tell us about some of the methodology and scope of the research that you've been doing on COVID-19 and what are the methods of populating the data and then analysing it? Our methods
1: do not vary much, whether we're in a pandemic situation or not. Our core technology remains the same. So I come from an anthropological background at SOAS, as you know, and the biggest insight from that discipline is around observational information, getting us closer to something truthful than surveys or focus groups. And the internet is, of course, the largest source of data about people that can be observed, whether it is search engine data, which is people getting onto Google, YouTube, Yandex, or by do in China, and asking things that they were too embarrassed to ask in public, or even almost confessing their anxieties because it's a private space. And of course, there is social media, which is visual and textual, image based and uh, numerical, that reflects some amount of aspirations of individuals. So that entire field, the digital field is the source for our ethnographic, anthropologically informed observations. And that's what we use.
0: So do you ever have any... Questions around truth when relying on the machine understanding of humans.
1: And that's a very good question, and I don't want to be relativistic about it. You know, I know it's fashionable to to speak about what is truth, but we do know a couple of things. The first thing we know is that the capturing and the aggregation of data is. Non ambiguous. So when Chipo, you search for something, there is a count and a record of that made. We might access it in aggregate, but there is evidence that that event actually happened. Similarly, when you say something on the internet, there is evidence that that also happened. We get into complex territory when we speak about the meaning of that search and the meaning of that social media upload. And that's where issues of truth really become fairly tricky. So uh, we don't know what you meant when you search for something, and we don't know what you meant when you took a photograph of, you know, a, a bowl of soup and uploaded it on the internet. But we do know, based on hundreds of other contextual events like that, that have happened in your ecosystem, of what it could possibly be mean. And that's the way we look at our information. At the end of that, of course, is a human analyst or semiotician, as you said, or a researcher or an anthropologist who can take all of that information and make certain educated guesses about what is going on. Even though I've broken this process up into three different nuances. I think there is very little ambiguity when you look at internet data of what is actually taking place. Even though some of it might be performative, it is very clear that it is performative.
0: Very interesting. So could you highlight some of the surprising trends that you've picked up during COVID-19 and what they're saying about people's desires? We found some fairly
1: funny things take place in this particular period. First is we found that there's just generally an attraction towards positivity and an attraction towards joy. We did a project for Twitter, which demonstrated how Quilt.ai has developed ways to detect positivity and joy beyond just, I'm happy, I'm sad. In a range of contextual behaviors, and from an overall perspective, Jipo, we've seen that the levels of positivity relative to all the horrible things that are happening in the world uh, with COVID nineteen have increased. On a more practical level, we've seen some very counter moves that that individuals have taken. You know, we've seen individuals trying to exercise mastery and control over their lives. By doing very intensive exercises and uh, slightly over the top expressions of control, a very nice example of this uh, is is called everesting, where they they you know almost like climbing Mount Everest, there's an intense pack of energy expulsion and that that takes place. A second interesting and fun trend we've seen is this obsession with the perfection of the home whether it is photographs of food photographs of order or even this uh, cute little trend called tablescaping the third fun we've, a fun trend we've seen is especially in markets that have opened up into a post covid situation is something called cottage core where where individuals are returning to less urban ways of life. We've seen many such things emerge. What interests me and what seems to tie a lot of these things together is a disconnection and almost a stepping away from conventional urban uh, modernity that seems to be happening.
0: So I just want to go deeper into the social impact side of things. You did some interesting research on adolescence sexual and reproductive health in India. Could you give us some insights on those findings, please?
1: Yes. I mean, there's a very detailed report uh, that is available uh, on the website, but I can share with you what I found interesting about the full report. So I think we found that And and again, here we looked primarily at search engine data. We found that the demand for at-home abortion methods and kits has surged since the last quarter. So we had about almost a 48% increase in uh, young women searching for at-home abortion kits. And also about informal non-medical home remedies into abortions. So that's been a slightly alarming trend. The second trend, of course, has been that overall demand for birth control and overall uh, searches for contraceptions by men has reduced and withdrawal methods and other sort of home type of contraception methods have increased. And, you know, perhaps linking it all together, we've seen a deep Anxiety around unwanted pregnancies taking place, and what all of this tells us is, is about, of course, issues of access. Whether it is safe sex-related uh, products are, are not being accessed, and people are going back into a fairly reactive mode of of family planning. So that's been a fairly surprising piece of insight into sexual and reproductive health for us. We've noticed a few other trends around how uh, women have been impacted during the lockdown. The most alarming here has been, of course, the idea that a lot of younger girls uh, who were about to go to school and, you know, where a lot of inter had been created for these young girls to have the permission almost to locate it, especially in semi-urban and slightly more rural areas. Those type of impulses have been slowed down. And, uh, you know, ideas of digital education, of course, uh, are not really targeted uh, and impacting the most vulnerable women across the country. So some of those things, uh, what we have noticed um. In, um, in, in our work, especially amongst young girls and boys. But overall, there has been a little bit of a, you know, a few steps backwards as far as uh, sexual and reproductive health education is concerned, and certainly a few steps backwards as far as the education of young girls is concerned. We've done something similar for child protection. I'm happy to talk about that, but...
0: Yeah, you could actually touch on the child protection research course. as well.
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the things we discovered, uh, you know, we've been running a few pilots is that there's a lot of people on the Internet searching for child pornography. right? So that's the first uh, statement. We've noticed that a lot of people who are not perpetrators and hardcore consumers are just casually wandering into the ecosystem. So we wanted to do something about that. And we, we ran this campaign where we studied how many people on the public web, so not the deep web and places like that, but on the public web, was searching for things like this. So overall, we had a number, I think, twenty north of twenty million a month of individuals is searching for fairly horrific things. And of course, then they would search, they would not get anywhere, right? Then it's not it's it's not easily available this type. Of content but there was a, there was a certain impunity with which they were searching so we ran a deterrence campaign where every time they would get they would search for things like this we would serve them communication and messaging that would terrify them in some shape or form that would realize that this kind of stuff is actually a terrible thing to do and is reprehensible and a part of really encouraging the entire apparatus of child uh, trafficking. And so because these individuals are not hardcore, they're like on the fence or early, you know, explorers of child abuse imagery, it really worked. So we saw in some cases and some keywords, which were being searched for like seven, eight, nine million times a month, managed to reduce it in some cases by about uh, 17 to about 30%. So that's the way the internet can have an impact, but it's not only, okay, now this, searching for sewage and toilet treatment, but also that we are able to, through awareness building, make people understand that, you know, some of the things that they think are okay are actually not okay. So it's the same technology used to sell soaps and shampoos and and mobile phones, but just being used to deliver messaging
0: uh,
1: and uh, impact people's uh, ways of engaging with the world.
0: Can you give us like just an idea of have the outcomes of these trends shifted like since lockdown measures have been relaxed and does the data indicate how long-lasting the effects of some of these issues that have arisen during COVID might be post-COVID? That's as they say um, a billion dollar question Chipo. I can I can tell you
1: on the things that I've been watching uh, what the story seems to be but uh I would urge you not to extrapolate from there to all possible scenarios. Uh, We have seen, as as I've mentioned, the amplification of certain types of identity, whether it is cruelty inside the homes or strange desires on the internet, we've seen the amplification of some fairly positive things like people wanting to be more house-proud, slightly more into fitness, but we've also seen the amplification of not knowing how to deal with things, so fears and performative bravery, etc. And while these started peaking as we got to the height of the lockdown... Just because the lockdown is over doesn't mean that they've gone back to zero. So certain things have, of course, left an indelible mark on people and have changed their priorities fundamentally. And I believe that that's going to be what we see as we go forward. I also think that there's a whole piece on the tragedies of COVID that are going to start coming out. We've heard anecdotally, of course, and you know, all our personal circles of people who have lost jobs or lost relatives or had uh, their marriages fall apart. I think once all of this is over, in quotation marks, so many stories are going to come out that it would really have changed our perspective uh, fundamentally about who we are as
0: a people and what happens
1: when we are in a
0: crisis. So I wanted to speak about one of the big issues during COVID, which is climate. Yeah, it was a very important topic during lockdown, uh, where we saw drastic improvements in air quality in the world's largest cities. You've been doing some great work around climate do you want to speak about your climate dashboard and you know how things are looking now
1: yeah so you know firstly I agree with you the you know hashtag nature is healing as they say we've seen cleaner skies in India than we have in a long time people have spoken about birds chirping and being able to see plants and there's been this entire narrative of positivity. But the problem with that is that it creates a false assumption that the world can reset if we just do a simple action like stay at home. I don't think that is the case. I think uh, people coming back, factories opening up, they're going to get out of this uh, fairly utopian experience of the world and go back into the engines, of the dark satanic mills, as they used to say, of, of production and industry that are polluting the world. So it was in this context that we built out uh, our climate change dashboard, where we looked at three types of indexes. The first one being climate data, so air pollution, air quality, temperature variation. We had about uh, 20 variables there. Society was our second index, which is How stable is the society? What are the crime rates? What is the inequality or equality in that particular society? How congested and urban is it versus how open it is? Is it a port? Is it not a port? And we had about 20 variables there as well. And the third was people and culture, where we've noted that there are eight types of people as far as climate is concerned. On the one side, we have people who are avoiding the issue and pretending that it doesn't exist. And then we have people who believe it's somebody else's problem and they really don't care. Until we have people who are like extremely activisty and engaged with it and are fully on board the mm-hmm. movement. So we have about eight or nine such types of people. And we looked at their distribution in each of these cities as a segmentation exercise. And one plus two plus three, which is the first one being the climate index. So how vulnerable is the climate situation? Because if you're not experiencing anything, you're not really thinking about it. The second is social index, which is how strong is the society to survive a climate crisis. And number three are the types of segments and the deniers that exist in each of these. And once we combine all three of them, we can get an insight into how to speak to that city, the types of stories and the messages we can use in order to raise awareness. And then we hit a button and you can actually run those communications. So, you log into the dashboard, you select your city, and you get all of this data. You type in some information, and you get a 50 slide report which contains all the variables, all the strategies, and how you can actually change behavior in those cities.
0: That's really fantastic because the challenge is how to engage and keep different people engaged uh, on this issue. So, in your research, do you sort of look at how issues? or trends, such as the ones that you've spoken about, are mediated or discussed differently across the different platforms and social media? Yes,
1: very much so. I can give you some examples. So we know that every platform has a very different genre style, a different audience segment, and a different type of logic. So Let's just look at that piece of work we've done on the pandemic and young people, which you discussed earlier, because I have some public data on how individuals behaved across the platforms. And I can just share some headlines with you and maybe go to implications then. So if you look at Facebook, Facebook is essentially a news update, political issues, COVID, COVID type of platform. So in India, it's focused on the cross-border aggression that's taking place and some of the flashpoints with inside the country. And so that's one type of narrative that happens with young people on Facebook. The other, of course, is some amount of bonding about encouraging individuals to stay at home and be a little more responsible. So that's the narrative around Facebook. On Instagram, of course, we see posts on family, and relationships and how people are reconnecting and rebonding and cooking cool stuff and fixing their homes, you know, as I mentioned earlier. But there's also some amount of staying active and fitness goals that are taking place on Instagram. So that's a fairly individualistic platform as opposed to the Facebook, you know, society plus neighborhood type of narrative. Instagram is also an aspirational platform. So there is some some stuff around uh, imagining what life will be after the lockdown is, is over. On Twitter, of course, it's uh, super political and super vibrant and stuff happens and it takes a life of its own and dissipates. But of course, it's also a fairly joyful platform where people are making friends and connecting with strangers and sharing things. So we mustn't always think of Twitter as a purely intense, negative place. YouTube, of course, is entertainment. And one of the the scary parts about YouTube is that it's also become fairly strong spreader of misinformation with young with young people feeling fairly confident in uploading stuff that is not always accurate uh, regarding you know health or medicines or immunity and so along with the entertainment there's some amount of in quotation marks uh, infotainment that's taking place and of course you have apps like ShareChat which is fairly local language type stuff uh, religious type of information and of course hello app which is similar to share chat which is again a little local but a little more celebrity and, and humor that's taking place there and you have of course tiktok but <laughs> you don't have tiktok anymore so it's a fairly dynamic ecosystem so your narratives have to be different in each one of them so when you speak let's say about jeepo's podcast on Facebook you have to focus on national issues or community level issues if you speak about Chipo's podcast on Instagram you have to speak about how, you know the hustle and the ability to create uh, even though you're in the middle of the lockdown if you speak about Chipo's podcast on Twitter it has to be about the relevant issues that are trending today and you know being able to speak to some of those so there's a different logic everywhere we find that a lot of uh, marketers often They also have their concerns about uh, deploying messaging at scale. So sometimes they don't take into uh, account a lot of the nuances uh, across the platforms. But we're hoping that that changes uh, over
0: the next couple of years. With the social impact trends, you were focusing on India. I wanted to know about how these trends then compare with other countries. Do you sort of look at that and analyze the differences Uh and similarities? on a global scale or is it more localized? We are
1: working globally. I just used the India examples based on the prompts that you had uh, given during our chat, but uh, we've done work in pretty much all countries in the world except uh, North Korea and Iran and Venezuela. But uh, I can give you a sense of what's happening across the world if you're interested. So if you take uh, some markets like the United Kingdom, we are seeing, or even the United States, we are seeing a very interesting movement towards, you know, for about five years, there's been this movement towards naturals, you know, natural this, natural that, organic, vegan, etc. And with COVID-19, I think we've seen a fairly strong movement back The awakening of a certain interest in no-nonsense, heavy chemical clean. So very, very interesting things are happening there. We've also seen increasing amounts of polarization around identity in both of those countries, which is just going to increase as we go along. We have seen in some parts, we've seen a lot of increases in young ladies joining apps like OnlyFans in order to increase the ability to earn money through their bodies in some countries we have seen increase in super indulgent foods that are these incredible treats that are happening inside the home we have in other countries seen an incredible desire to disconnect from all forms of media and video and a re-emergence of extreme wellness and spirituality. So there's a lot of stuff happening all across the world that is both interesting because it's very counter to what the trajectory of the world prior to COVID, but also very troubling because it's new forms of either exploitation or cruelty that emerged.
0: Do you have any global South country examples?
1: They're all mixed in there. I think the OnlyFans example was in rural and urban Kenya, where we have seen some interesting shifts in self-identity for women. So we found that uh, young girls in Kenya are exploring information around sex and um, sexual health, primarily online. And we have seen almost a doubling of this after COVID, of course, when they go on forums and have these discussions, there is, of course, a strong pushback from slightly more conservative people. We've also noticed that this SRH conversation in that country is dominated primarily by fairly loud individuals and, and some amount of misinformation that is, that is pushed away. And uh, there's a lot of guilt and shame, of course, with the narrative that is taking place online. So it's a very different story to India, which is a passive consumption of content. Whereas here, there is an active consumption of content and an active conversation about these subjects. But of course, there is a strong pushback because it's a fairly loud ecosystem that, that exists there. We also see that there are negative influences as well as positive change influencers. So one of the very interesting type of negative influencers are people who are sponsoring these young ladies. You must have heard the word sugar daddy, and they are trying to push this narrative. And there's some amount of exploitation that takes place, even though it doesn't seem like it. It seems like a fairly innocent uh, thing on the surface. We've also seen a tremendous amount of patriarchal pushback taking place online. And uh, the largest set, of course, is people who are just uninformed about women's sexual and reproductive health. So we've, we've noticed a lot of very, very interesting things happening across the world uh, with regards to women's sexual and reproductive health. And you just take that example of individuals who, you know, are in quotation marks, patrons, You don't see that in all markets. You see it only in some markets. And that's the nuances that we can pick up using the internet and working at scale.
0: So just as a final question, I wanted to get just your final insights on this type of research. And also, I guess it's mostly the organizations or different organizations that would have access to this type of information, these types of insights what about regular individuals as a way of better understanding you know what's going on online or better understanding their experiences and what they're putting out there into the world so we do try and share as much information as possible we're usually sharing a piece of content every
1: day we are also building out a product that allows everyday individuals to experience the beauty and magnificence of the internet we are also writing a book on we don't have a good title for it right now, but essentially on the positivity and the hope of the online world, given how often it is positioned as something else. So we're we're trying our best to make the ability to study people at scale be something that everyone has access to, either through books or through blogs or through podcasts like this one, or even through a tool that we hope to launch in the near future.
0: Amazing. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Angud. And thank you for all of these insights. Let's see what happens post-COVID and hopefully some of the positive findings and learnings will stick for the future. Thank you, Chipo. So for our listeners, discover more about this topic by accessing the following resources available in the show notes on our website. You can listen back to our interview with Angad and his partner and co-founder Anurag Banerjee in the episode AI for Social Good, And you can visit the Quilt.ai website, which will be linked in the show notes. Quilt.ai launched their climate change analysis tool. That's the data dashboard that Angad was speaking about. Learn more about it in the post, putting climate and data into action and keep an eye on their social media to be able to access that for yourself in the future. And discover more about COVID 19 trends in India in the quilts.ai article, The Pandemic's Impact on Young People in India. You can watch Angad present findings on adolescent women's health in India in the video, Emerging Adolescent Health Issues During and Post COVID 19. And you can read about how COVID 19 has affected climate trends in the article, Post COVID 19. Collective action on climate change in India. How do we get there? And learn more about quilt.ai's awareness building campaigns in the article To Flush and Forget. Or read about how quilt are using cultural AI to gain deeper insights into human behavior in their article Making Machines Human How Quilt.ai is Indexing Humanity at Scale. And you can learn more about quilt.ai's pioneering research in the video interview. The Pioneer, Conversations with Angad Singh Chowdhury. And find out more about the meaning behind some of the weird and fanciful COVID-19 trends in Quilt's article, Tablescaping, Cottagecore, Everesting. Three unexpected lockdown trends and what they mean to us. Finally, find out how people have been spending their time in isolation or how people spent their time in isolation in the article, A Big Year for Staying Home. Cribs during coronavirus times. You can find us online at www.soascodingclub.com, follow us on Facebook at Soas Coding Club, and on Twitter at Soas Coding Club. We broadcast every two weeks, so tune in to discover what's to come in your global digital futures. <laughs>